You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Adam, we, uh, I guess I hit the record button, but, but whatever. You are uh, returning for your second yeah. time. Oh, boy. <laughs> Join in the two-timers club. One of the lucky few, right? <laughs> kind of a big deal. You, yeah. uh, oh, I wish. <laughs> no. What do you mean you wish? I wish. The big deal. You're on the <laughs> yeah. podcast twice. You, you messaged me um, the other day about, uh, and we're going to get into this later, but just to set the listener up about, like, this is, a, this is the time of the year when, like, trail builders probably hold their breath and wait to see what damage or use is done to these trails they've worked so hard on in the spring thaw. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. I kind of reached out just thinking that um, now is a good time to talk about kind of trail etiquette and uh, stewardship of our, uh, of all the trails we love to run. Everything's just super sensitive this time of year, pretty much all over North America anyways. I mean, obviously it's maybe not around the world, but in our backyards, Mm-hmm. Well, before we get to that, I just want people to know it's coming. Bracken, you don't know this, but so I have coached Adam. Adam, I've coached you for maybe the last two years or so um, through ankle surgeries, through just, I mean, you're the bionic man. But <laughs> yeah. Bracken, what you don't know is that I have coached and trained you to run the Cowboy Loop and Rim to Rim to Rim in the Grand Canyon. Or rim to rim. No, rim to rim to rim you were thinking about. Anyways, Bracken, why don't you take it from here? Well, tomorrow morning, I'm hitting up the cowboy loop. Buck. Nice. I did it in December. <laughs> I was talking to Kirk yesterday, and I was like, I'm doing the cowboy loop. It's this loop. He's like, oh, I know the cowboy loop. I've got someone that's getting ready to do the cowboy loop. And just someone else that did the cowboy loop. And it turns out one of those someone else is you. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're gonna have fun. I hope I hope your ankles are feeling really strong. <laughs> is, is it techie? It's it'll be the most technical trail you've probably ever run. Really? Yeah, I mean, well, you do fifty. I think it's like fifty four hundred feet of down, and it's um pretty unrelenting. And the way they do the water breaks. Have you been to the Grand Canyon before? No, this is this is my first time. Oh man, what a what a way to experience it. It's a uh, it's like cobblestone, rock armored trail, bedrock, and then uh, um, because horses use it and pack trains, it's um, water breaks with logs every like eight to ten feet, so it's super odd spacing. Okay. You're going to have a blast. It's, seriously, it's a super beautiful run. I'm, I'm going to pause right there. I, I want to apologize to the audience. So I'm still in Arizona, obviously. I still don't have my mic and my setup here, and... They're in the process of cutting down a tree outside. They showed up to start cutting this tree down like 15 minutes before we recorded. So I'm going to do my best to control the, the noise. But as you saw with our training Tuesday, it's just not ideal. So bear with us. So Adam, right before you got on, I was talking to Kirk because I flashed him my new watch here. My watch died Ooh, yeah. two days ago during our recording. It started just starting stopping starting stopping then i went out for my run got back jumped in the pool got out and the watch face was just like i don't know a kaleidoscope it was done yeah so i immediately got on 
This new one is the Phoenix. Yeah, I got on Facebook yeah. Marketplace and I messaged every Garmin watch <laughs> that was anywhere driving distance to me. And the first person that replied, I drove out and I picked the watch up. So it is a women's all white with shiny chrome bezel Garmin Phoenix 5S. Congrats, man. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the, the point of all this is I just told Kirk before you got on that there's a section I'm, I've been running in the, the white tanks. Over here, I don't know if you're familiar with the White Tank Mountains. Yep. Or White Tank I've never run, Park. but I know the area. Yeah. And there's a, a – the, the route I've been doing each day, there's a good chunk, and I told Kirk, I can't imagine outside of just a boulder field. I can't imagine anything more technical to try to descend than what I'm doing right here. And the very first <laughs> thing you tell me is, well, tomorrow you'll run something that's more technical than anything you've run in your life. Yeah. Yeah. What, what way are you running it? Do you know? Are you going down Bright Angel and up um, South Kaibab? Or? As far as I know, those are the only two words that were told to me, are Kaibab and Bright Angel. <laughs> who, who are you doing it with? You're, uh, with a group of people, yourself? or No, just a buddy. Uh, John Yatsko. I don't know if you know the name or not. No, no. He lives down here. So so usually people do a Basque, so they go down Bright Angel and up South Kaibab. Um have you looked at any of the times on the top 10 and stuff like that for Strava? No, because I'm not in that kind of fitness right now. Oh, okay. It's like, it's, it's insane. Once you run it, you should go look at it because it's like, once you run it, you have perspective of how fast people act, you know, like, yeah, like, like Walmsley trains there, you know? So the, the route I did yesterday, I was like 354th up the big climb, 152nd on the flat, and like 12th or 15th down the technical part. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know who's going to move a whole lot quicker than me. And then I saw Jim has the number one time down yeah. it. But beforehand, I looked at it, and he's running like 8.13 pace down this trail. And I thought, it must have been a recovery day. And then I get on <laughs> it, and I realize 8.13 <laughs> is out of this world on this type of terrain that we're running. Yeah. And you'll see... On like um like the South Kai Bob, he does like six thirty miles up it, and it's I mean it's five thousand feet of game, so it's like it's one of those <laughs> things you're like, dude, what an animal, you know? So it's um it's it was fun to run just to get like a perspective of where you like fall with all those because there's like um I ran it in was it in December or November I think I ran it. Did you go after it or just experience it? Um, I was hoping to go after it, but the elevation and stuff kind of got me. Honestly, I, I felt a little bit sick. And so I, I did, uh, it was I November, it's 20, it was November. Yeah. It was 20, 22 miles, I think is what the full loop is. I did 18. So I stopped at the top of, um, the South Kai Bob, my body was just falling apart. Um, but that's my third time running in the Canyon in the last two years or something. Um, but it was my first big run after ankle reconstruction surgery. So, um, it was more about getting out there and just kind of seeing how my ankle held up. Yeah, John told me that I'm not allowed to get to the point where he has to carry me out of the canyon. <laughs> so I see I've seen a lot of that. I saw I saw a spiral spiral fractured ankle on my way up when I was there in November. So it's a rough trail, man. You had a story about uh, your first crack when you were at the Grand Canyon, I believe, um, where you you were lucky to live, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Tell us uh, about that. Yeah, so the. Come on, Lisa doesn't want to hear this right before I head out. Oh yeah, you'll be good because you're not. You're doing. You're doing. You're only doing half, right? So like, you'll be totally good. You, you'll. I bet you it takes you four hours. You think I, so? I would estimate you take it around four hours. Yeah. 
probably quicker than that even. What's your quickest, real quick, before you get into your other story? Oh, I don't even, I'm honestly, I don't remember what my time is. Um, I don't. I honestly don't remember. I could look on Strava. I well, I'm, I'm going to pull that. up Strava right now. Yeah, yeah. It was back in November when I did it. Um, November 2021? Yes. Yep. All right, I'm going to pull it up. You guys get talking. I'm going to get searching. Yeah. He, he was coming back from, we'll get caught up on what you've been doing, and then we'll get into the trails, but... Continue about yeah. your one your one experience, your knucklehead experience, I like to think of yeah, it as. 20, was that 2019? 2019 I did it. Um, I needed to do like a big adventure run to qualify for this ultra that I've signed up for. And um, I went in with, I think, 4,000 calories in my vest. So I had it all planned out. But my stomach turned upside down on me after breakfast. So it was like 6 in the morning. And so I didn't eat anything for 40 miles or 42 miles or something. This is rim to rim to rim for clarification. Yeah, so it's 40, yeah. 48 miles. Yeah. So okay, like, so this wasn't this wasn't down and up. No, no, this is the full crossing and back. And what and, are the uh, stats on that for people to know? We're talking the Grand Canyon going from one side to the other back to the original side. Well, it's it's um 11,000 feet of gain and I think it's 22,000 feet of change total or something like that. I think is yep. what it is. Does that sound right? And mm-hmm. uh it's 48 48 miles the variation of it that I ran cuz there there's more than one way to run it depending on which trails you take. So some, like the people that are doing some of the speed attempts are running the shorter. A lot of those people are running the shorter route, which is, I think it's around 46 miles or something. But if you do Bright Angel to North Kaibab to South Kaibab, it's 48 miles. If you do, you know, it just depends on which actual trails you end up running on. Um, I think I did it in 10 and a half hours, but that's, I'd never run over 10 miles before. So like, I'm stoked with that. <laughs> this is pre us working together, but yes, yeah. but tell the story. Yeah, tell the story quick. Yeah, I mean that's it. I got I got way in over my head. I couldn't keep food down, so like in he went miles, by himself. You knucklehead. Yeah, I did go by myself. I had a spot with me, like an emergency. But there's no one's gonna rescue you in the Grand Canyon if you get stuck down there trying to crossing. You're the, the Rangers aren't gonna come down and get you. Sending a helicopter is like 2,800 bucks, I think, if they turn the key. So, like, if you're in there, you're kind of in there. <laughs> and uh, um, the route, you're, like, the route you're going, Bracken, Bracken, there's no water. So you should be aware of that. There will be water at Phantom Ranch, but water nowhere else. I th- Yeah, I thought John said there was one fill-up spot. Yeah, at the bottom. Yep. So how long do I need to go before I hit water? Um, well, half of it. At the bottom is where you'll hit water. Oh, so I'll get water minimum i mean the longest i'll have to go without water is two and a half hours um yeah if you can run downhill fast yeah (laughs) that's the thing right it's a vertical mile we drop without stop right and you're you need to remember you're at elevation too you drop in at i think 7500 feet something like that so so climbing out's uh, fun climbing out it is kind of fun you know it depends on what your idea of fun is <laughs> but every step you take you're going to get because you drop down a mile over the course of five or whatever oh we got some there's an air force base here too so we get constant flyovers yeah. with with jets we we can't really hear though your microphone isn't sensitive enough i think today so okay but I then you have to run a mile up so every step you take up you get more fatigued and you gain elevation and get less oxygen yeah so for me I felt like I felt like absolute garbage dropping in, and it's uh, I believe it's 13 miles to the bottom um, if you're taking Bright Angel, and so it's about a half marathon down, and I felt better as I got lower, um, but at the bottom it's like two or three miles of sand, 
And so the running doesn't get easier. <laughs> you just have more oxygen, you know, and then you, you cross the river to Phantom Ranch, which is like the official, if you're doing the cowboy loop, the official thing is into Phantom Ranch and then back up um, South Kaibab. And that's only seven miles. So it's actually way steeper trail on the way out by about double. Um, <laughs> so, so what are we talking? What kind of grade? Uh, I think it's 20. I think it averages 22% or something like that. That'll do. Yeah. It's not, I mean, you can run it. Have you been doing it like incline work or? I'm a, I've been starting incline work the last two How weeks. box jumps? You've been doing box jumps or anything? I started playing basketball three weeks ago, and I started incline work a week and a half ago. So <laughs> you'll be you, you'll set. be set, man. <laughs> all right, last. I probably have two questions for you about this before we get to you. First of all, shoe choice. Shocker that um, I'm curious about that. I brought three shoes along. I, so I only with the all the stuff going on with my feet. I only run in uh, the Brooks Cascadia because I found that to be the best shoe for my my feet. Okay. So. I run it in that. The thing that you're going to want to remember, especially this time of year, there's going to be water spots. Do not get your feet wet. You're really? in the desert. You will get blisters if you get your feet wet. Like, do not avoid, avoid all the water. Cross, like, try to keep your feet as dry as you can. That's, that's the price I paid. I had just wicked blisters because my feet got wet. Is that worth bringing an extra pair of socks? <laughs> um, I don't think so. Depends on how much you want to suffer, I guess. But none. I just you can avoid the water, you know. Okay. It's not long enough for the, down to the river and out. I think to carry a lot of stuff. I did it with a. I did it with a, eighty. Like a eighty was it milligrams or whatever of of water, just like a small water pack, and I didn't stop. And a couple, I think I had three, honey stinger waffles, something like that. Is our uh, our speed goats too too built up to be able to handle that that technical? Although that's probably all Walmsley runs in. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I don't know. I don't like shoes like that, but some people it's great, you know. It it's on the way down. The thing is, it's there's not a whole lot of places with super sure footing. That's the there's a a couple spots where I felt comfortable. My situation's a little bit different than yours with my ankles, but yeah. where I could really open it up and let it rip. But then a lot of it, you're kind of like jumping from rock to rock, you know. So you're not so, ripping, descending. You're not you're not flowing down this thing. You're chopping. <laughs> I mean, if you can find flow in that, props, man. <laughs> I'll be curious. Okay. I'd honestly be curious to talk to you after you do it. Well, I mean, don't don't think I'm going to be ripping. I, I just want to know, like, am I picking my way through this, or do I need cushion because I'm going to be pounding for 13 miles going down? Well, I mean, you it's steep. You're going to be pounding. I mean, it's downhill. You know. It's technical downhill. Whatever shoe you like for technical downhill, you know. Are you running with uh, poles? No, I don't own poles. Like sticks or whatever? No, okay. Yeah. yeah you, Should I find some I, sticks? I, I wouldn't. I don't like them, but, I mean, you see a lot of people with them. Yeah, just go for it. Are you wearing a vest or a belt, or what are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to bring a full. I'm going to bring a vest and a belt, actually. I've, I've got an ultra I'm prepping for, so I'm doing all my runs in a vest and a belt because I cannot stand the feel of it, so I'm just trying to get used to it. I, I would ditch the belt and just do the vest and fill, overfill your vest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, like, you're going to uh, – how many calories are you going to take? I mean, <laughs> I'll probably just plan it out for however much water I need for five hours, and then I'll fill that with, with tailwind inside of it. Yeah. And then take take something for you're in the desert. 
So like you're at elevation in the desert. So plan your water accordingly for using more than you probably think you will. Yeah. I've noticed that on runs. I'm reaching for water like 30 minutes earlier than I normally would. Yeah. And, and you're in there, like if you can find someone that'll give you water, great, but not people aren't just going to offer you stuff. If you run out, you know, it's prison. (laughs) Yeah. Kind (laughs) of, I believe that's what got you out of that Canyon. Your first attempt was some nice soul feeling bad for you. Gave you some water. Yeah, I got walked out by three of the nicest folks I've ever met. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you could have been in a bad situation. You hear about it all the time out there, underprepared people going out there and then just suffering or dying. Yeah. But Bracken's in good hands. And you're doing just the cowboy loop. You're only doing half of it, you know? So, I mean. Don't say only half. Let her rip. Yeah. (laughs) I'm surprised you're not doing the whole thing. Uh, A. I'm not prepared for that. B, North North Rim is still closed. That, yeah, well, but if you're doing the back-to-back, like when I did it, there was still knee-deep snow on the North Rim. It doesn't have to be open to run to it. You just can't enter from that side. I'd want to enter from North and run North to South. No, 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 no. Why would you want to do that? So that I can descend that side and climb the other side? But it's it's uh, you'd have to do it either way. No, no, no. I'm not, Rim to rim to rim? Yeah. No, I have no desire for that. I'd like to go rim to rim, and that's about it. Anything past that, it's a fool's end. Oh, man. <laughs> gotcha. I have, no, I have no desire to die out there. Yeah, the shuttle, the shuttle around is like six or seven hours. You don't want to it's, – it's honestly faster just to run back across than it is to take a car. I don't mind the time. <laughs> yeah. I mind what – now, maybe at the end of this training block, that's a possibility. Right now, the gain – tomorrow or the goal tomorrow is smash myself and barely Mm -hmm. survive it rim to rim Mm -hmm. to rim would not be a good thing right now i'd be that person who's unprepared going (laughs) everyone's unprepared the first time you know (laughs) all right i'm I'm looking at your your strava now this looks gnarly you found the run yeah i wasn't entirely stoked with my time i was honestly like pretty disappointed i thought i'd be way quicker than i was but you have a reason for that. What do you mean? My ankle? Y- your full ankle reconstructive surgery. The fact that <laughs> yeah. you had not been trained properly by November to go attempt anything like that with yeah. sound mind or body. <laughs> totally. Uh-huh. Um, All right. This, this route I'm looking at here, Walmsley has the number one overall. This is, this is on a 32 minute climb. He did it at nine and a half minutes per mile. Number five overall, Chris Brown. Hmm. Our buddy Chris, just ahead of Hayden Hawks. Chris is a monster. That's just a segment of that loop? One segment. Yeah, there's there's a million segments in the canyon. I mean, there's like mile segments and full loops. and Final climb, Kaibab Trail. I think it's like 6.1 miles or something. The whole... Um, I fell apart maybe like two miles into the climb or something. And I started doing like 20 minute miles. I mean, but it, I, I knew I was falling apart. So I just started to rest. And my thing was like, well, let's just enjoy it at this point. You know, mm. it's so pretty out there. I mean, it's your last half mile was, was a uh, 2805 pace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds right. Bleed. No, you'll understand. You'll understand once you do it. <laughs> well, I know Kirk, Kirk, Kirk talks up that you're, you're a bit of an animal. So to see that is very sobering to know that that's, what can wait 
Yeah, I just I literally just got off the incline trainer fifty four hundred feet again in sixty minutes. That's insane, by the way. How how much you got fifty four hundred? Yeah, in sixty minutes, three yeah, and a half miles an hour. Right Not a chance. Yeah, but wait, wait, what were you on? What was your incline and what was your pace? Um, three to three and a half miles an hour at thirty percent incline. But my goal is to keep my heart rate under one hundred and fifty. So yeah, just, I can't do that. Just chugging. I mean, that's it would be beyond possibility for anybody I know. I don't even think an Atkins could do that. Yeah, he could. If you did it every day, you could do it. Yeah, a, vertic- a vertical mile an hour is is like a you're a very good climber if you're doing that. World class. Yeah, my flat speed right now is terrible though. I don't feel I get on the roads and I don't feel fast at all. <laughs> you know? And that's fine. But- well, then I'm going to steal time on these flat Strava segments that I get tomorrow. All those flat ones. Those, those two miles or three miles at the bottom. Oh, I'm going to be ripping. <laughs> I'm going to bring flats along. I'm going to change into them, and I'm going to attack those two. <laughs> you're, I mean, you're taking a camera or a GoPro or a, your phone with you or something. My phone. I don't have any of those other things, unfortunately. Seriously, stop and take some photos because it's absolutely beautiful. Like, Make sure you enjoy it. Don't just... Don't just run it, you know. I'm serious. It's like it's such a pretty place that it's it's worth enjoying. You're doing it at sunrise or when are you leaving? As early as possible. Yeah. If you I mean if you can get out there for sunrise, it's so gorgeous. There's like there's a skeleton point, Ua point, you'll run through Indian gardens. Um they're just it's there's a couple spots where you can you can yell and it's you can hear your echo like thirty seconds later. I mean it's cool. It's a cool place. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, I've never even seen it. So it's, I'm going to soak it all in. Yeah. It's, it's different than mountains because it's such a massive place that scale is lost. And so like the weird thing is on your way up, you think you're like, Oh, the top is right there, but it's 5,000 feet above you. you know. <laughs> so, and there's, there's two parts to the Canyon. There's the upper Canyon and the inner Canyon. And when you're in the inner Canyon, you can see the Colorado river the whole time. And it's just, it's just pretty, man. It's a special place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll be thinking of you. Yeah, thinking yourself, man. Keep quick feet. <laughs> quick feet. Constant vigilance. Yeah, you. That's what I'm saying. Make sure you enjoy it because it. For me, it was technical enough that you'll find yourself not looking up. You're just looking at the trail, you know. So, yeah. like, really take some moments to take it in. Seriously, it's a pretty place. Okay. Any last minute questions, Bracken? Oh, I don't know. How close will food be to? to the rim do i need to have it all packed with me well if you do bask and you're doing the full cowboy loop you'll get to the top of kaibab and that's a four mile run back to the village so you that's the closest i can park yeah that is the closest you can park that's gonna be the longest four miles of my life (laughs) but but there's restaurants and everything in grand canyon village or whatever there's like burrito shops and those hotels at the top have like four star five star restaurants in them so i mean I don't need that. Just point me to the local Taco Bell. Oh uh, yeah, there's well the closest thing is a Wendy's and that's like fifteen miles away. <laughs> I'll bring my own. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. I'm stoked for it. You're gonna have so much fun. That's probably one of my favorite places in the world, man. It's Grand Canyon's beautiful. Okay. So you're saying the main takeaway here is overpack water and cows. I think for your first time, because if you get stuck down there, it's just you and your running partner. And you guys have to be able to take care of each other. You don't, you don't want to stick him with trying to carry your ass out either, you know? So yeah. that's like, it's wilderness. I mean, there's no, no, no it doesn't seem like it because there'll be busloads of people and everything, but you get 
two miles into the canyon and you probably won't pass more than 10 other people. So, I mean, you're, when you're in there, you're in there. It's, and there's no cell service. There's, I mean, satellite phones don't really work. I mean, you're, you're down there. So my thing is like, what's a, what's another two honey stinger waffles? You know, I mean, you're already carrying a bunch of other shit. Right. That's my, that's my opinion. Am I going to be in direct sun coming out? Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you will okay. be. Got to sure. protect this dome. Yeah, I I wear so I wear I you I wear a running cap and then I carry um because it, on the way if you guys if you take the route I think you'll take um you'll start passing mule trains so I carry like a neck gaiter to cover my face because those they they smell like shit and they kick up a massive amount of dust so um okay. I run with a gaiter when I run there so that would be my advice if you have like a lightweight gaiter. And then it, when you're in the sun, you can just pull it up over your ears, you know. Or I, I guess it depends if you wear a hat when you're running or not. But I have to. I would in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it might be 90 degrees in the bottom. I don't know what the temperatures are there right now, but it'll be 20 to 25 degrees warmer in the bottom than at the top. So that's something to be aware of when you're thinking about your water intake and stuff. Five degrees every thousand feet a drop, right? It's something like that, yeah. Which is 25 degrees top to bottom. Yeah, p- people looking at the crossing right now on a group I follow are talking about 90s in the bottom. I don't know if that's what it actually is, but so run it in the morning. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Shall we move on to you, Adam? I think we could do this all day if we had to. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Bracken, you ready? I'm ready. You sure? Yeah, and this has been on my mind because... We have a lot of trails around here that have thawed, and I'm I'm always a little bit hesitant to destroy that which I love. It's uh, fair. So I want to hear from the man himself. Well, I want to hear from the man himself too, but I want to get caught up on what you've been doing since we we spoke to you last. So it was a very informative and entertaining episode. I don't know how long ago it was, Adam. A year ago, maybe we had you on the podcast. Um, and Adam, uh, Pathfinder Trail, what is the official name? Pathfinder Trail Builders? Uh, Pathfinder Trail Building, yep. Yeah, Trail Building, which is a company you own. Um, I know you had a crazy build season this last year. You were working like an animal. Um, and you also somehow managed to completely break your ankle and need reconstructive <laughs> surgery. So you, tell us about yeah. what you've been going on, what's been going on with that since we last spoke with you. Yeah, so since we last spoke... Um, that fall, my ankle just wasn't staying. It was pretty loose is the way to describe it. And, uh, turns out that I toasted I, two of three ligaments and a tendon and, uh, four bone spurs and a whole bunch of scar tissue. So what do you mean by toast toasted? Um, they were completely disconnected. So my tendons were doing all the work of my ligaments. And so my tendons had a bunch of tendonitis and damage and my ligaments were, weren't doing anything. <laughs> they were fully <laughs> retracted. And because of that, the inside of my ankle had an insane amount of scar tissue buildup. And um, so when they actually got in there, they found bone spurs. I think it's called debridement. I don't know the, all the terms of everything, but pretty much they went in and reshaped a few bones in my ankle along with reconnecting um, the ligaments. And then they put in a bunch of bone anchors and string and stuff. So um, it's not like it's fused, but it's got 
hard stops as to like how much my ankle will move now. Um, and then it was, I think we just went through this yesterday with my, with my doctor, cause I'm going through it with my other foot now, but, um, 34 sessions of PT I did last year. So one a week for most of the year. And you ran and with, with those torn ligaments and all the tendon stuff, you were running on a, an ankle with three full torn ligaments for a while, weren't you? Like you were yeah, two, two you, torn you ligaments. Um, two torn, sorry. Yeah. A few years. Yeah. How? How is that like physiologically possible? <laughs> well, I kept this is so like if I were to if I were to say anything to the running public people that are listening, this is why you should go get more than one. If you think there's something still wrong, you should seek out a different doctor. Um they think the injury actually happened to me nine years ago and I just never got it fixed. And so I've been running on it that way for however long. And it's, it's like every couple of years I go to the doctor with my ankle, the size of a softball, you know, being like, I don't know what's wrong. There's what's going on with my foot. And I do PT and it'd get better, but it, but then it'd get worse again. And, um, it took going to that guy that you, that you lined me up with Kirk. And he was pretty much like, I've never seen an ankle this bad. Get out of my, get out of my office. You need to go see a surgeon. I won't even work on your ankle. And, um, and then I got in with the surgeon and the surgeon was like, dude, you need an ankle replacement if you don't fix this. And so I'm fortunate that I caught it when I did because an ankle replacement is like a lifelong and I'm, I'm young enough that I probably would have to have another one in my lifetime, you know? So, um, we're super fortunate that we caught it when we did. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, as of, Tuesday, I found out in my right foot, I have a torn tendon and a partially torn tendon. So I'm, they cleared me to run, but I'm on, I'm running on kind of like not borrowed time. I'm going to start PT and see if we can get those worked out. But yeah, so I had one, I had two good ankles. Now I'm back to one good ankle and one bad ankle again. It's amazing watching. Cause I know some of your run stats, cause we check in every week and seeing even just like how much you've been able to run and then how quickly you started to become again after like, when you think of like a full reconstruction and call you the bionic man, like that's not a lie. <laughs> I don't know how you're doing what you're doing on that ankle, but anyways, that's, that's wild. And then to know you have the other ankle going on, uh, should make everybody feel grateful <laughs> for whatever they have going <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah. Be stoked. You can get up and walk without pain. It's a cool thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What is the timeline on this? When did you have surgery? I had surgery March 24th last year. And what was the recovery timeline? When were you able to feel like jogging is realistic? And then was when was the first time you were able to run like off-piste? And then the next uh, time when you could finally rip a downhill? Yeah, so I was, on, I was only on crutches for three days. Um, and then I was walking in my cast because I was in a cast for three weeks. And so I just, I, I actually picked up a cane and um, I only missed three days of work. So I was, had the surgery on a Thursday by Monday. I was back to work. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Build, building trails with the guys with a garbage bag wrapped over my leg or whatever. And um, what I started doing was walking a mile with the cast on almost, it was maybe like a week later. Um, every day I'd walk a mile. And then I took um, like some Velcro strap and I strapped my foot to my trainer um, and I put in like 25 mile rides, just super gentle. Strapped your, your cast to your spin bike. 
Yeah, yeah. So that because the cast <laughs> is so big, I couldn't get to stay on the pedals. And um, I did that for six weeks or something like that. Um, but if I was in a cast for three weeks and then a boot for a boot for four weeks or something. But I started taking my boot off so I could put my clipless pedal shoes on or whatever um, almost immediately. I didn't. They told me I could take my boot off in my house. I didn't understand that that meant I wasn't supposed to be training. And so I was like stuffing my swollen foot into my... Your trainer is in your house. Yeah, exactly. That's what I said to the, <laughs> the PT people. I was like, well, trainer's in my house. I mean... You have to be um, way more specific with me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was maybe um, eight weeks, I think. And then it was... Um, running on roads and i think i don't i don't remember i don't remember kirk when did i talk to you was it in june or something june. i reached out being like hey they said i can run again <clears throat> and i started with just road running and then um i had a couple scares where i had to have x-rays and mris done again because i hopped on the trails and had some nasty spills and stuff like that um but I think it was maybe eight to 10 weeks or something. And I was back on my feet running like maybe 30 miles a week or something like that. Um, I was doing lots of the, so I got in with Twin City Orthotics is who I used. And um, being one of their patients, I had access to the, the Viking High Performance Center. And so I got on one of those, um, what are they called? Zero G machines. And so I was doing like seven and 10 mile runs within a couple of weeks of being out of my boot on that, you know. That's such a powerful tool to have. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, felt, it felt so good to get out of a boot. And I mean, I was running at 80% body weight or whatever, but just being able to run again was kind of like, hell yeah, you know, we fixed it. I can, I can do it, you know. But yeah. Um, and then part of that, I bought a game ready system for my house and an incline trainer. And so I pretty much have a PT facility in my house now. So like right now I'm actually icing my other foot. And um that's if if you can afford that stuff or have the ability to get it, that's been incredible to have access to because it my surgical foot still swells and stuff like that. And they said that's just normal. So um icing for me is almost an everyday thing now. What has your experience with the game ready system been? Because I don't know many people who have that. I would recommend it to anybody. They're ex they're expensive. If I listed off all the injuries I've had, um, I wish I had a game or anything a long time ago because you can buy the different sleeves. So you can get once you've bought the unit, you can get shoulders, ribs, groin, like your hips, your knees, your ankles. Um, why don't you Why don't you describe what that is for people? The game ready system because you actually asked yeah. me if I if I'd used one and I didn't know what it was and then I had to go look it up. So. Yeah, it's a, so it's like a, it's a really small unit. It's maybe, I'm looking at it right now. It's like a, it's like a computerized ice machine that you put maybe two pounds of ice in and two cups of water. And then you put on a sleeve and it does compression, cold compression and um, yeah, cold compression and kind of like you, it has programming in it where it'll, as it's compressing and icing, it, it's supposed to promote blood flow and everything to the joint and everything like that. And it's, um. I love it, man. And it's, it's mess free because it's a self-contained thing. So you, like you can sit on your couch and your couch doesn't get soaked with water. You know, it's not like you're using bags of ice. Picture those units that people have to use after they have surgery. When they have a major surgery, they come home and they've got a pump, you know, people who have ACL surgery or lymph node surgery or anything like that, they, that hospitals use. It's, it's the consumer sport driven version of that, but in a compact form. 
Yeah. And you, you need a prescription to get them. So like your PT or your doctor will have to write you a, like I, my insurance wouldn't cover it. So I, I just, I, <laughs> I use it so much that it was worth it. What's but, it? How uh, much, how much is it? Yeah. I think they're 3,200 bucks. Something like that. It's about, I mean, it's about the same as buying a treadmill or something, you know, but it, it depends on, for me, I was, I'm so tired of being hurt that it was worth the cost of having it at home. Cause I know I'll use it if I have it here. So um right have you found it to be useful for prevention or is it just getting you back on your feet quicker well i never had it before prevention i bought it after i had surgery so um in all fairness i've used it because i've had to use it you know not because um not because i was like oh my joints are hurting um but like i did a marathon in january and i did both my ankles before the marathon you know, just because I was, you might as well if you have it. You know? so. And you smashed I, it. I mean, I did all right. I mean, yeah, it could have been quicker. <laughs> you won. Well, you got to tell me, what'd you run? Uh, um, I did my first marathon distance in January. And so I'm going to, I'm going to put the asterisks by it. It was negative 15 degrees out and we were in six inches of snow, but I did a, a 340. <laughs> on the trail, on the trails. On a trail marathon, yeah. What's the conversion? How what what? How many seconds per mile per inch of snow? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Is it like <laughs> elevation where there's a chart? There should be. <laughs> I would say negative fifteen. There's going to have to be a temperature chart too, so you have to factor them both in. It's probably like a two hundred five. Sounds guess, about right. Yeah, I wish. Two hundred four high. Two hundred four. Two hundred four high. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. Well. So moving on from your ankle, um, something I want to talk to you, and then we'll get to the trails too, but another update for you, which I don't know. Can you talk about the little side project you're doing for the, on the private facility? Can you, can you talk, can you talk about this? So, so we have these ideas of grandeur, Adam and I, uh, Adam more so, but selfishly, I I think how can Bracken and I take advantage of what Adam is doing (laughs) more than anything, but Adam and this is actually something that I can see people traveling in from around the country. And so can you set us up? So again, Adam trail builder fell into this great situation. I don't know. I even know how that happened. That connection was made, but why don't you tell us about what's going on? Uh, yeah. In that regard? Yeah. I can't, I can't give, I, I won't give super specific stuff yet. Cause we're still working out some of the details. Um, but we are building um, a semi-private trail facility um and we have a two mile loop in it already constructed and this spring we'll be building the carry loop but we're going to be putting in um as much of a spartan style course as we can um just outside the twin cities metro so um the way we're looking at it i think i think i can't remember the specifics but it's about 350 feet of gain every two miles and um it's um sandy clay-based soil and we're in the process right now of designing all the all the trail obstacles. So it'll be barriers, rope climb, monkey bars. Um, we're looking at the different styles of walls and stuff like that right now, and where we're going to place them on the trail. And so they, and then we and then we built a separate loop that will specifically be designed for carry, and that's going to be like super tight single track through like some old growth oak trees. So it's going to be absolutely gorgeous. Um, and the hope is it's a different take on like an exercise trail. And the thought is we looked at a bunch of exercise trail stuff 
and people don't use them. They're not super fun. And talking to the landowner, we brought up the idea of like, hey, you know, what about doing more like obstacle based stuff? And he was all about it. So we've we've been cruising the internet, trying to see what we can copy or change to kind of make fit in this space. And um, I think the idea is to take everything you would see in a Spartan style course and make it make it a little bit bigger. My mentality has been like, well, if the rope climb is 12 feet, let's make ours 16 feet. If the monkey bars are 20 feet long, let's make ours 40 feet long. So that from the training standpoint, you're going beyond what the race is. So you can, you know, I don't know, the 150% rule, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I guess we can't give away too many details. I understand that. But the idea is that this can be either used as like, uh, maybe like a donation basis for an event. Or for example, if we were to have like, running public training camp we could host it and use a facility like this and maybe it'll be open to the public at times it sounds like it's hard to it's hard yeah. to know but yeah. this is in the like the hilliest area that i go to train typically if i need to go find the hills it's in beautiful bluff country and yeah. just outside the metro and it has like actually really huge potential to have stationary obstacles we talked we had a phone conversation adam about what should be on there yeah. and it was like we got to get the carries so like the sandbags and the buckets and everything in like a loop style, like a legit course with everything just yeah. on steroids a little bit as far as the obstacles go to just amp up the training. And I'm like really looking forward to it. In fact, I'm going to ask you here probably in the next week to see if we can buddy up for a run out on the course and hit a long run out there so I can see it. But Yeah, yeah. And I think um, the idea that I've had through it all is that – you. Uh, I still come back to the thing for me, the first Spartan or obstacle course I did was two years ago. And the, the cost to try it is so much that hopefully we can create a place where you can try it. And then the people that really want to get after it, you can come out and do two mile repeats on an actual course. There's no way you won't get better with that available, you know? So the thought is that the, the best way to get better is to do what you do in the race. So let's make a place you can do most of, I mean, there's some things we obviously won't be able to put in, but a lot of the stationary stuff we can certainly add on to this. I can get behind that. Is this yeah. multi-use? <laughs> can people come out and just run trails? Is there going to be a mountain bike component or is this OCR specific? No, it's, it's mostly. So the gentleman that owns a property is a really accomplished trail runner and mountain biker. And so it's the, Two mile loop is what we would call bike optimized single track. So everything's built with mountain bikes in mind, but you can certainly run it. And then we're building a bike park up on top of the bluffs and between the loop, there's a bunch of down trails and those will be different levels of skills. So like we had some pro BMXers in there building like competition level jump trail. And we're going to have like some real technical single track for the mountain bikers. And, um, and we're kicking around some other ideas. Like we've, We've kicked around the idea of copying a segment actually of the Grand Canyon and taking that style of trail construction and building a, a place so that you can come and try and see like, well, this is what you're going to see out there. Here's 300 feet of climbing of a oh, I really like Grand that. Canyon. You know? and so like we're just, we're kicking around different ideas and seeing what we can fit on the property and stuff like that. And yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be cool. I'm excited to see it come together. You could become the gear and shoe testing capital of the Midwest. <laughs> where you could come out there and test out every type of terrain that you could possibly, like if you're going to the Grand Canyon, go out and find out like, will these gaiters or will these socks or will these shoes yeah. hold up on this terrain? I like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. From what I've heard um, about this, like if it is, if it comes to fruition, it sounds like this is all the green light. So this is happening. The trail's been built. You built the trail this fall, right? And so now it's just adding in the features, if I'm not mistaken. But um, and if there's anybody I trust to build a damn good trail, it's you. But this would be a facility in which, like, if I had access to this and I didn't live here even, but I was like, you know, the Z-Wall gets me once in a while and I just the race flow. And they say you want to practice these specific I would specific things. I would fly out for like an intensive weekend if there's a day pass raid or if there's like without question, this facility is I can't think of another one. Maybe there is one out in the country. I don't know, but I can't think of one that would be as comprehensive. You can get vert, you got flats, you have technical, you'll have some space to open up, you'll have every or most of the features that cause people problems, like full on would would make time out of my life to go travel to this place. Do you see it being a facility that might be worth that to people? Yeah, I think the other cool thing is it's close enough to the metro that there's hotels, lodging, food. Um, It's also close to a state park where you, you know, if you need to go get a super long run in, you can build a whole program in this area and everything is within 10 miles. It's not like, oh, I'm going out to this random field and we're going to do obstacles over and over. It's like, hey, I need to do obstacle repeats this morning. This afternoon, I want to go run 20 miles on single track. Well, right down the road, there's a place you can do that. So um, I, I'm excited. I mean, I live three miles from it. I've got to run to it from my house. So, so I'm pumped. But um, it's a, I, I think, yeah, for sure, it's a, a place where you'll be able to build a good program around it if you want to, just because of the other stuff in the area, not necessarily just this one spot, you know. Yeah, well, I think it's cool because when we had you on last, I tried to get something out of you and you'd had this plan of maybe, you know, buying an old used up ski resort or hill and and making it something of your own, which is a cool concept because, again, if I trust anybody to do something that's worth using, it's you. And then you (laughs) fell into this situation unknowingly, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a phenomenal experience to have. It's the guy we're working with has been he's been one of the easiest people we've ever worked with he's been very much like make this place special do cool stuff you know <laughs> so yeah it's um one of those weird opportunities that just right time right place kind of thing hmm. i could see myself using this and i don't yeah, yeah i mean that's a really like halting dumb statement to make but generally when people pitch ideals like this i think ah it's just not gonna cut it because you get one or the other, like it's cool trails or you get some obstacles or someone has some carries set up outside their gym. But the the ability to chain together multiple styles of working out in one, mm-hmm. that's got some legs to it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the hope is we're, we're going to be building most of the features in-house. We've got our own fab guy and stuff like that. So the cool thing is that we can we can directly control that it's built the way we want it to build be built. It's not like we're picking it out of a catalog and like, Oh, it kind of works. It's like, Nope, this is what we want it to be. And that's what it'll be. Which I think um, is one of the problems you see with some of the other stuff is people are taking commercially available things and trying to make them work. Whereas we can look up that Spartan feature and be like, this is the spacing. Okay. This is the spacing we're going to do. We don't have to like pretend that it's the right thing. Well, we're going to make it the right thing. You know, Bracken, I always think you're going to talk when you hold that up to your lips. 
<laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to get in the habit of keeping it here so I don't keep oh. dropping this thing alone. For people that don't know, because I don't have my microphone with me, I have a headset with a mic that dangles, but if I drop it down to where it normally is, it doesn't sound as loud, so I have to put it basically right up under my lower lip and hold it here. You're holding it like a small cob of corn, ear of corn. Yeah. You need a beard, you can stick it in. Ooh. But then it just rasps. <laughs> and yeah, I can't grow a beard. <laughs> Before we move on from this trail thing, this trail build specifically, and then we get into the other trail stuff that we actually wanted to talk to you about, uh, can you walk through like like the features that you are planning on having here, at least with the intent or likely to happen? Yeah. Yeah, I think the intent is to do um, the really easy ones, obviously. So hurdles, um, mm-hmm. which sounds weird, but I think there's like technique involved with those. So I thought oh, yeah. that was a good one. The, wa- the walls, because I think a lot of people struggle to go from a run to trying to get over a wall. Um, yep. And then we, we're looking at monkey bars, uh, the rope climb, um, Z wall. We can't, we, we obviously can't use barbed wire, but I think we're going to try to mimic it with rope or something. So you have the idea of like the low crawl situation. Um, cause I, I think that's another like good skill. Um, we're going to do bucket and sandbag carry. And I've also been looking at maybe doing, um, seeing if we can work with a local landscaper and get some boulders of the right weight and maybe do boulders too. Um, or like big Sweet. stones. Um, are you doing some sort of rig, like rings or anything like that, like a yeah. ring type situation? Yeah. 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 We, we've been trying to figure out how to do those and make them durable. So like we've been looking at the vertical rope. We've seen, I've seen a lot of those. Um, we've been looking at the, like the A-frame slope deal where you have the, the climbing holds for your hands or the holes cut. Um, but if you guys have any recommendations, like I've talked to you, Kirk, I'm like, we're open because we, we can build just about anything, but there is, like, the liability aspect. So we, we just want to make sure that it's, like, well thought and safe um, mm. because these things are going to stay out there. You should connect with Rob Butler. I think he's out in Vermont. He has he has the Fit Challenge course on his property, and he's built a lot of gnarly obstacles. And his are the he cares less about liability, I think, but <laughs> he also has the public go through it to some extent, Rob I think. Butler. Yeah, he'd be a good one to talk to. And then um, Jarrett Newby, they own Noob Sanity. He's out there on the East Coast as well. They have a gym and an attached OCR course and trail what was system. The name of, what, was, what was the name of his thing? Noob Sanity, N-E-W-B Sanity. Okay. But he's a good guy. I've chatted with him. They Those are cool. two people I know who have built their own, okay. their own features. And they might have cool. some insight on sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like, that's the other side is if, if this ever does open to the public, all the stuff needs to be like, kind of not sanitized, but it needs to be something that, that a government body could say, yeah, we feel safe with people climbing all over this. Mm-hmm. There's a woman out in Colorado too. I've, I'll look her up right here. She's got a good sustainable course that I used to train on out there when I lived there. Didn't that close? The one in Colorado Springs, right? It just outside the Springs. I think it was in Falcon. Okay. I thought that closed, but maybe it's still there. Maybe. It's been it's been four or five years now since I've been out there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Th- I think our hope is to make it high, you know, we've definitely dug around and our hope is to make it like a high quality experience. That's a pretty important part of it. So if we can't do it right, we probably won't do it, like as far as the features go. Um, but um, I don't think in this situation that that's going to be a problem. So... 
I think a big draw would be to have a an Olympus style uh, sharply angled board to traverse. That is just would be a big draw, and then some sort of like Herkhoist on a pulley system, which would probably be. I think if those got in, you're, you're going to cover most of your skill bases that any race will throw at you. Um, those two, I think, if there's room. I mean, obviously, it's going to become so obstacle dense if it's a two mile loop that you know. Yeah. But you could have what even if, a course in which loop A you hit obstacle every other obstacle and they're labeled, and then mm-hmm. loop two you hit every you know you could extend. Yeah. But you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So all all the features will be what we call beelines. So the single track will be open so mountain bikers can cruise it. And these are all just going to be little runs off to the edges that you can snake off and do. And with the idea that you can loop them individually or you can, oh, this one we're going to do all hurdles and walls. And this one we're going to do all the hand grip ones. And this one we're Mm going to do. um, And so um, I think it'll be obstacle dense, but I think it's still going to be every like three or 400 feet. There'll be an obstacle kind of thing. But I think in a setting of training, I think that's perfect. You can force people to, <laughs> to like, yeah. to become proficient at it. I mean, there's, you, otherwise you're just going to be bummed. You're going to come out there and be walking between every feature. You know? Yeah. The fact that this has mountain bike trails and running trails and the OCR course means that it's got some legs. Generally, these facilities can't keep it up because they have one specific crowd. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when that crowd is affected by something, whether it's interest or availability, then the whole facility crashes. But, you know, those yeah. gravity-based courses where bikes pair really well with ski hills. But when you only got one or the other, then it's a little more volatile. So I like the fact that you have multiple irons in the old stoke fire. Yeah, totally. It's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful piece of land. I'm excited to see it come together. It's going to be a couple more months here while we build the features and stuff. But um, I would, before depends on how complicated they get but i would say before like midsummer it'll be all it should be all constructed and put together is this a potential running public training camp site who are you asking the room i mean kirk is at you, you know my question to you guys would be since you guys always ask me about trail stuff you know when are we gonna see that <laughs> Well, people have been asking if we're ever going to, and our response is always, you know, if we have the right location, it would make a lot of sense to do. It would be a blast. When Adam and I talked last, it was it was talked about. Yeah. Okay. I like <laughs> this. Mm-hmm. I can tell by that by the look that you're excited, but you can't talk about everything. And so I guess I'll just leave that, that bone yeah. live. But down the road, we should have that conversation. All yeah, right. I think I think – it's going to be an ideal place for camps. I mean, it's like, it's a cool zone. Sweet. Let's, um, so let's move on to, uh, I do have one last question, Kirk, okay. which shouldn't shock anyone. Is this something that's going to combine that low rope, high rope type of deal where you get schools and corporations through there, or is this really just a fitness enthusiast slash training ground? I think the property owner is trying to figure that out. Okay. Um, uh, on how to best utilize the facility. He wants, he wants people to use it. Uh, a big part of him is wanting to expose like younger folks to different activities and sports and to come out and be able to learn. And so I think um, as he figures out programming around it, we'll have a better idea of that kind of stuff. Cool. It's privately funded. This is all of the, uh, his own stoke birds and kindness of his heart, right? Yeah. I believe it's all privately funded. Yeah. Yeah. It's through, if I, yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> it's one individual is leading the charge on it all. Yeah. Okay, cool. 
Um, okay, now we'll transition. So it is spring. Spring has sprung. The trails in most places are an absolute mess. They've been, you know, we take them for granted at times. Um, and now is like the most sensitive time of the year for them, if I'm not mistaken. And so, as you had said earlier, when we started this podcast, that you'd reached out and said, Hey, this might be like a good topic to talk about. And I agree because my feet have certainly stirred up some trails over the years, <laughs> you know, to yeah. the point where you look at yeah. them and you're like, oof, like how, how's it even going to come back from that? So I'm going to let you start this conversation, man. Like what, what, where do we start this one? Yeah. Well, I think the thing that we got to be careful about, I don't want to come across as preachy, right? Because then people just blow you off. Um, I think from a trail building standpoint and trail construction and management standpoint, through the pandemic and stuff, we've seen outdoor use absolutely explode. And I think the issues we see is less about people purposefully doing stuff and more so that they just don't know um, like trail etiquette and trail stewardship. And um, and I think it's because they don't know because they just don't know. And like so many, there's so many new users in every outdoor activity out, out and about right now. Um, and that's kind of what spurred reaching out was kind of like in the mountain bike community, people get bombed with that information. There's signs at every trailhead, every forum, every Facebook group. It's constant, pretty nonstop in the spring about if you're leaving tracks, stay off the trails or if you're, you know, like don't, don't make muddy trails and stuff like that. And so, um, as a trail runner myself, I don't see that information getting put out to the running community and it's always kind of surprised me. And, mm -hmm. um, so my thought was to reach out a lot of what we do as trail builders is advocacy and, um, letting people and teaching, sorry, my computer's going dead and letting people know that, that side of it, you know, like being outdoors is great. Buying new shoes and bikes is awesome. Sharing photos is great, but we don't have any of that stuff without the trails to take them to. And, um, I think it's about helping people understand that you can get involved in a bunch of different ways and the, the really basic stuff, you know, I think some of the stuff that kills me is you get out on a trail in the spring and the amount of like goo packets and water bottles and just shit you see on the trails from the winter time. It's a bummer, you know, and that's not just a springtime thing. That's a, some of the stuff is like year round, you know? Um, and so my take is that it's just like a, a very, very important topic. Um, but it's also a topic that I, you don't want to approach from the standpoint of like on a point at people, you know, like, Oh, you're on the muddy trails again. You know, it's more just the hope is you share the knowledge and people absorb it and just do the right thing. You know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't know, like before meeting and talking to you, there's a, a place here in the twin cities called Elm Creek park. And there's, it's probably one of the more elaborate mountain bike systems in the cities. Is that right? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And I've, you know, not knowing once I've snuck on the trails before to run them years ago when it said closed, because then I knew I wouldn't get yelled at by the mountain bikers. I did it twice. This is years ago, which is super frowned upon, I know. And then two, running the horse trails, which are allowable, and you can really rut those up. It seems like they're, they're okay with those getting turned mm -hmm. a little. I would say the amount of time that that mountain bike trail was closed was astounding after any rainfall, after. And then I got a mountain bike and I used the trails last summer. And I was like, I am such an asshole for those two runs that I went out on, on there. <laughs> and I get it now. Like 
those trails conditions are pristine and on purpose, especially in the technical sense of a mountain bike trail. And then knowing you and hearing about like what goes into making trails and how this all works, I was like, oh, this is all making sense to me now. Like, but how many mm-hmm. of you runners out there have snuck on a mountain bike trail when you're not supposed to or when it's closed? Probably everybody. And maybe not you, Adam. But I have. You I've have got a story for you about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We've I've actually I got caught on a chunk of trail that was closed by the local mountain bike organization people from the local maintenance group. Waiting to waiting to see if this would happen. Yeah, and I didn't even know that I was on closed trail. And I posted like a photo on Instagram and a Strava segment, and they like hunted me down and reached out. And I, I don't know if I still have the emails, but they found my contact information. And like, we're gonna email your sponsors. We're gonna. I can't believe you own a trail building company, and it's a trail that um, I used to be a board member on a nonprofit that, and I helped design the trail. And so I was kind of like, what? Are you kidding me? I didn't even know it was closed. You guys got a better signage. <laughs> like, yeah. You helped design the trail? Yeah. And it's just like, that's the turnover though, right? And volunteers is like, I'm, I've been around trail building long enough that I've worked on stuff that's 20 years old now. And so it's like some of it, earth changes, you know? So stuff that worked five years ago is great, but now it's seen 200,000 passes on it. It needs to change, you know? Um And it sparked a really good conversation um, with the club. And it made me like reevaluate like, well, as Pathfinder, what can we, what can we do to help in these situations? Because it really comes down to getting the information in front of the users. It's not about like, I told the guy, I was like, Hey, these are still public trails. You don't own the trails. You can't like, you can't reach out to scream at me. If the trail sign at the head, at the head of the trail said open, and five miles into it, you have a segment closed. You can't expect users to like just stop and turn around five miles into the trail network. So like there's the communication and especially in the Metro Kirk, you know, like Elm Creek is managed by volunteers. Those trails mm-hmm. are 100% maintained by volunteers. So, you know, they probably don't have a budget. The tools were probably paid for by them. The fuel for the equipment they use is probably paid for by them. If they have any power equipment or machines, that was probably paid for by a grant or a nonprofit. Um, Those people, instead of using the trails, are out there taking care of the trails. And I think there's a lot of user conflict because of that. They rightfully so, they take ownership. And um, being that's public land, they can't really take ownership, but they're the ones doing all the stewardship. They're clearing the down trees they're grooming it in the winter they're making sure that the footprints and ruts that we left from run it when it's wet get raked out there's um and so i think you see lots of user conflict there because what you see is um runners hikers bikers they stop and instead of saying hey thank you they start arguing with the people and that's where that's where it's like a no-win situation for anyone right because you're pissing off a volunteer that's given all their time that might lead them to be like, you know what? I'm volunteering my time for free. And now I'm going to get yelled at for being on the trail, fixing it by people using the trail. Well, I'm, I'm done doing this. And we're all worse off when that happens. You know I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's a, that's a zero win situation because without those volunteers, those trails don't exist. You know I mean? Um, the actual construction might be, might not be done by volunteers. All the advocacy work to get the trails probably was. And 
all the maintenance work on the other side of construction is usually done by volunteers. And so that I think that's something that really needs to be understood that these, these trails don't exist in a vacuum. They're not there on their own. So, I mean, it's, we've worked on projects where it's, I've sat down in planning meetings where one guy has been arguing with the Bureau of Land Management for 10 years to get four miles of trail built on a crappy piece of desert, you know, where you're like, no one's ever going to use this trail. And then we opened them and there's a hundred people at the trail opening on a Wednesday night. And so I think it's like, it's remembering that people put a lot of time and blood, sweat, tears into these projects because that's, that's their passion. Right. And if, as users, we're out there doing things that wreck this, these things, you're, we're, we're going to lose these facilities and these nice places, you know, I mean, it's, um, and so it's, it's a tough conversation because it's one of those things where, again, you don't, it's an education thing is what it really comes like when you buy a pair of shoes, is there anyone telling you not to run wet shoes? No, the advertising from shoe companies is a guy running through a mud puddle out on a trail, you know, which is like totally counterintuitive to what you should be doing, you know? Um, and yeah. Yeah. I trained uh, a guy for years, uh, John Hartland. He, um, volunteered at our system here, Elm Creek. And it was, you know, we trained in the gym twice a week. He's a client of mine. He moved to Seattle, so he no longer is. But anyways, um, Wednesday nights were off limit because Wednesday nights from five to eight was volunteer at the trail and they all met and picked a segment or did whatever. And today's project was this and they're very organized. And he expressed, this is before I got into trail running, before I found Spartan racing. So I was still running roads those days. So I didn't have the know, know with all, but now totally get it. And he would talk to me about his frustration sometimes and yeah. how people would mess <laughs> him up. And this guy's working a full-time job training himself and taking three hours out of his day at least once a week, Wednesdays, and then sometimes um, another day to go to go fix it up. And that was that much dedication. And there'd be 20, 30 guys sometimes that would show up and do that. Yeah, it was an impressive organization. New appreciation yeah. for how those trails stay, stay so nice. Yeah, yeah. And if you're at Elm Creek, that's Minnesota Off-Road Cyclist that led the charge on that trail project with Three Rivers Park District. Um, and... Uh, Minnesota Off-Road Cyclist maintains just over 100 miles of single track in the Twin Cities Metro. Um, and so that's the other thing to remember is these organizations are leading the charge in their mission statement is maining and or gaining and maintaining trails. So they literally, all they do is advocacy to get more trails for us. And so that's the other thing to this is if it's kind of a respect to the organization, these people are all volunteers. I think that's like, the thing to remember is none of these people are paid. They have families, full-time jobs, school, other hobbies. A lot of people, once you're a volunteer, you don't even ride as much, you know, because you get, you get sucked into it, you know? I mean, it's like a, it's a different side of the sport, you know? This is a conflict that you're absolutely right. It arises out of a lack of communication and information. Because I would consider myself a fairly like cerebral user of trails, and yet I've committed as many cardinal sins against <laughs> trails as you can because I didn't know yeah. that that piece. There was, there were these cross country ski trails that used to be maintained in the town that I lived in, and I didn't know a thing about skiing. And they got groomed, but I thought the grooming was. I didn't know that people still did classic, and I thought you could do classic on the the hard pack stuff. I didn't know you basically did it in the little track on the side. I thought that was a, a, a mark left behind by the machine. 
because it was way off on the edge of the trail. And so I would do <laughs> snowshoe running in winter and I'd be like, well, I don't want to mess up the middle of the trail for people. So I'm going to run over on the side where it's already charred up where this like weird oh boy. drag. Yeah. And so I'd run on with my snowshoes on top of those tracks and I'd break through every single section thinking I'm handling this correctly because those skiers are going to be thankful that I didn't chew up the middle of their route not realizing that I was tearing up the one thing that most people, how many people are skate skiing, you know, yeah. probably very few. So I was chewing up 90% of people's path. No clue. If someone would have confronted me, there would have been an issue because they would have thought I was the biggest asshole in the world yeah. <laughs> out here. Well, you were, destroying. but you didn't know it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. You know, and I was, I was a decently high level user of those trails. And I got chased by a guy on a mountain bike one time when I was running trails with a buddy. He's just screaming at me and yelling at me. And I thought he was the worst person I've ever met on a trail. And he thought I was the worst person he'd ever met on a trail because I came through bushwhacking off the side, found a trail and took it. I didn't know the trail was closed. He's out there maintaining the trail and thinks I'm the worst person. Like I'm a trespasser and a, a vandalizer. And I think he's some crazy crackpot who's chasing me on a bike. And like, it, it was a very tense situation, you know, in each other's face yelling. And yeah. we were both right. We just yes. didn't have the knowledge. So if if we can get to anyone right now to get both sides to realize that most of it's not done with malice. I used yeah. to see a trail close sign and think they want me kept out. They don't understand I'm capable of handling this trail in this condition. Right. You know, <laughs> and I took it personally. And then yeah. they'd see me on there and would probably think this person thinks he's better than us and doesn't care about the trail. And it just doesn't cross our minds that this is what we're actually doing to the trail. Yeah. And that's, and that's that's why what I've learned it's much better to approach this from not don't be confrontational. And this is for if people are listening and they're volunteers, don't be confrontational. Like you're not it needs to be a positive experience for everybody, right? Even even if it's even if it's that hard conversation of like, hey man, we really need you to turn around. We're sorry, but the trail's closed. Um too many times I've personally seen people get in each other's face and to me it's it's like look. You just made that, that person's going to run past every closed sign they see now, because now they're gonna be like, yeah, you know what? Well, fuck those guys. I'm going to, you're not going to tell me I can't be out. Here's a public park. And, um, as unfortunate it is to hear that we've seen it. So it's like one of those things you're kind of like, well, that's the reality. If some people are just assholes, there is no way around that. Right. But I think, um, a lot of it comes down to people, people, you don't know what you don't know. And I think like, you know, if you're, if you're running, like in the Metro, we have a lot of clay and water doesn't drain through clay so fast. It's, um, that's something that when it packs, it holds water, um, on top of it. You know, like if you look at soil, it's like a cake, there's different layers of different things and sandy soil drains really fast because it's porous. Clay isn't porous, doesn't drain as fast. Um, so stuff here after an inch of rain needs 24 to 48 hours to dry out. It's just kind of how it is around the Twin Cities. Um, and I think what people don't realize, like if you run a trail or you bike a wet trail and you leave a rut for two or three miles or footprints, like little bomb holes for two or three miles, those bomb holes now hold water. Water causes erosion. Erosion means the trail is going to go away. So the reason you don't want to leave that stuff is because in the long run, like to you as a single person running right then, oh, whatever, a couple footprints, those will run out. But if you and 10,000 other people do that, that trail is going to be 20 feet wide and it's going to be a mud pit and the city's going to have to close the trail regardless of what the volunteers do because the repair is so big that they can't do it. And 
the cities don't have money to fix that stuff. I mean, it's just, they're just not funding for that kind of stuff. So the reality is realizing that those little impacts from one person amplified over an entire park network is a big deal. You know, I mean, that, that is a really big deal. And so I think it's realizing that in this mud season right now, you know, if you want to get on softer terrain, go run gravel roads, <laughs> go find a rails to trail thing. Um, maybe run on a grass ski trail that's all melted out. You know, like everybody knows if you're a trail runner, you know what trails are melted out and what ones aren't. Don't invite your friends to go run the muddy trails, you know, <laughs> like go find the drier stuff. And I, and, and respect the clothes signs, you know, um, as hard as, as hard as it is, you know, it's like always a bummer when you drive 30, 40 minutes and the clothes signs up, mm-hmm. do a road run instead or a gravel run, you know, I made a, uh, made a 50 minute drive this last week out in California. I was staying out there after my race to a trail we had picked out for our day hike, 3,500 feet of vert over six miles. It was going to be fantastic close sign on the damn trail after the 50 minute drive and the whole deal. And we respected it. It looked great at the trailhead, but obviously there was just cause for that. I have a side question just because I was out in the mountains recently. You have a lot of national forests. You do have BLM land. You have um, all sorts of stuff. Um, I'm just curious because we're talking about volunteers. Do you know how that stuff's maintained? Like if you're going to go run at Red Rocks, even outside of Denver or somewhere. How is, is that stuff maintained by municipality or is that maintained by volunteers as well? Everything. For the most part, um, trail networks are, are maintained by volunteer groups. So, um, it might be a partnership, um, with whatever governing, governing body, but it's typically what we see is it's volunteers and, that's where you see the conflict. I mean, that's always where you see the conflict. Super passionate volunteer that's giving all this time. Person that wants to use the trail, no matter what kind of trail, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you do? And and I want to give people some actionable intel here because I think a lot of them are in my situation where we don't live in this mecca of trails. We don't live in this place where we, I mean, we have active groups that are maintaining. I see their little little stickers on the posts and their signs that this is maintained by, you know, whichever association, but it's, it's not like someone's out there every day at 5 a.m. opening and closing trails where I am. It's, I almost never see a sign that says closed unless it's actually privately owned. Right. So what is the etiquette for, there is no signage. So now it's on me. A, obviously we have to make yeah. people aware, but B, what is the process? How do you judge when you should or shouldn't be on a trail? Because part of the allure of being out and on the trails is that they're not pristine. They're not sterile. So we don't right. want people to think that you can't touch it. But what what is the protocol? Yeah, yeah. So this time of year, um, especially with all the frost, so like in the northern tier of the U.S., we're dealing with frost, right? So the ground is soft for a couple of weeks right now. And that's really important to the trail base, you know, like what you're actually running on. Um, so soil is just kind of sensitive right now to erosion. Um, and during the spring thaw, if you're leaving tracks, you should turn around. You know, like if you're, if you're pulling mud up with your boots or your shoes or your bike tires, you, you really need to turn around. And it, yes, it sucks. But typically, if you find that, it's going to be during this time of year, that will be on the whole trail. It's not going to be on just like a, a short, because what you're referring to, like, 
like sanitized trails that, oh, we have to wait till the whole trail is dry. Uh, um, that's kind of different everywhere, yeah. depending on soil types and stuff like that. But during freeze frost, snow melt, the springtime, if you're leaving boot prints and ruts, you, you should stop and turn around. Because in all likelihood, every north facing aspect is going to have that problem or every south facing aspect is going to, you know, like depending on sun and wind and everything. So like during freeze frost, it's not going to be a small area. It's going to be for five miles, you're going to leave boot prints. Then you should turn around and get off the trail, you know, unless that's an accepted practice in your area. But most places that's not an accepted practice, you know. Does that change then later in the year? Like if we respect that freeze thaw, yeah. you know, we get through spring, things firm up. Now we get a rainstorm, yeah. let's say in July. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. have to wait again or is it is there a little um, bit more leeway there? There's a little bit of leeway there. You have to realize that every trail is different. And so I think the thing you need to become knowledgeable on the trail networks you're running around, you know, like we have we built a trail network in Shakopee last year that we did improve surface for the entire trail network. So go out and run it in the rain. That's what it's designed for. Um, most, most trails within, if it's, if it's been built with like modern practices, the idea is that it'll be dry within 24 hours of a rain. And so it's just being like aware of that stuff. If it rained at six in the morning, you're probably not going to be able to go run at five o'clock at night. You know, like you, and it depends on weather and humidity and all that stuff. But if it's if it, if you go out there and it's muddy, don't you know? Don't don't run it, you know. But typically, after freeze frost, the trails harden up some, and they can withstand that rain and dry out quicker, you know. Um, if you get stuck out there and it starts raining, get off the trail as best you can without like blowing up the whole place, you know. Um, some other practices, if you're if you're on a trail that has like wet spots, like Afton Alps has some wet spots, the state park, um, with some like little streams and stuff like that. Keep single track single. Do not try to run around the water hole, run straight through the middle of it. You know, like you don't you don't want to widen the trail there because the water starts to spread out. So that's the exact opposite of what I've done. What everybody does. Right. I try to get on the shoulder and skirt it. Yeah. You do not want to do that. You do not huh. want to do it. Keep the idea. If you want to run single track, you got to run single track. So stay in that single track, run through the water. You know, I can think of a number of spots out at Afton where it has gotten wide and kind of ruined, so to speak. Now that you say yeah. it, I want to know how people know, like how to choose their trail, especially this time of year. Like in the Midwest here, we deal with a bit more precipitation out out west it's like the trails are a bit drier and it's like a free-for-all most days other than maybe when you have that snow and melt on those climates you know that are far enough south but still have the mountains so like but the majority of the country's in in that like freeze thaw camp i would say like how do you know like if i have trails to pick here i do i have trails i could where do i go tomorrow like how do i decide based on like trail ethics like what would be the i don't know the thought process or criteria you would use right um well this is a little bit of a tougher answer because i think everywhere it's different um when you and the the difference without west i think is that you off trail running is probably more of a taboo thing right because you have the different types of soils that grow on in like a desert environment that are super delicate um and so i think it's just i think a lot of it comes down to the user getting educated on what's around you i mean 
if you have a place that you know dries out, like in the Twin Cities, for example, Battle Creek is one of the first single track trails that opens for mountain bikes because it's pretty sandy there. So it dries out quicker. So it's sometimes open two weeks sooner every spring than every other trail network in the metro. Um, whereas like Murphy Hanrahan has a lot of swamp and lowlands in the running trails. In the spring with melt off, all those are high, all those trails are wet. You're, those trails are gonna be wet longer, you know? It might not be till mid-May till those open. And so it's just becoming aware of, and it's gonna take some exploration and being maybe a little bit bummed that you get to a trail and you're like, dang, you know, I probably shouldn't run on this today. Um, but like to give you more, to give you more, I guess, guidance here would be like, let's say I pull up my app, like all trails, I'm in a new place or mm -hmm. like, I, I don't know what to like, let's say what to look for. Like it could say popular. Like when I looked them up out in Colorado, it said most popular for mountain bikers and hikers and trail runners, mm -hmm. for example, well, mountain bikers was included in that. And that's going to be probably the most finicky of trails in general i would assume i could be wrong i don't know maybe i offended <laughs> yeah, people I, by using the word finicky but like what do, what do i look for like even on a label or like how to pick or i, I don't i wouldn't yeah, even know yeah. what to tell somebody yeah that that's the problem right there's nothing and i think that's the education the missing component to trail education right is that doesn't exist and that's where it comes to like the user has to educate themselves i mean you have to be able to go out there and determine if Hey man, if we just got like right now, if we got six inches of snow, the trails around here are going to be closed. You know, the ground's warm, things are melting. It's going to be super wet. There is no, unfortunately, there is no, there is no way, you know, try to stick to a more like mineral trail, you know, so whether it's gravel, sand, um, rocks, like that stuff, if you run on it when it's wet, nothing's going to happen. But if you're on like clay, silt, that kind of stuff, that's going to be super muddy. And that's, that's where it comes down to like learning, learning the trails around you and ask, asking, you know, and if you get out, if you're traveling and you get out there and it's muddy, part of it is finding out some areas, it's totally okay to do that. Some areas it's not like mount, mountain bike trails are more groomed, I would say than hiking trails. Um, and that, that's why you see that user conflict with trail runners versus mountain bikers. Um, and I think the other conflict you see like when you mentioned the ski trails, those people, they all pay for those facilities. And so they're going to have more of a vested interest in people not wrecking them. Like in Minnesota, you have to buy a ski pass, you know, and if you're a mountain biker and you volunteered, you're volunteering your time, which has a value, you know? And I think, um, in the Metro, you don't see as many runners volunteering to maintain the trails, you know? Um, but if you go up on the Superior Hiking Trail, there's an organization that maintains that. There's one that maintains the Border Route Trail. There's one that maintains the Ice Age Trail, you know. Okay. Okay. If I'm listening to this, and I'm feeling this right now as I'm listening to you, I still feel like some uncertainty. Yeah. It's the idea of you need to educate yourself is spot on, but it's also open-ended. Right. So do you, right. as a trail builder, as someone who's clearly like you're on boards, you're on, you're, you're connected in that world, yeah. where do I start looking? Right now I'm in Arizona. You said I shouldn't go off trail in certain spots because of fragile ecosystems and whatnot. Right. And how, how do it, is there like this secret app everyone uses? No, <laughs> how do I, I think, how do I go about educating myself? Yeah. 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 So I think like some of what you're mentioning is like the leave no trace policy or principles, right? of like backcountry use, like stay on the trail, step one, 
Step two, pick up your garbage, you know, step three would, would be like considerate of others, you know, don't run with earbuds in, <laughs> you know, like simple, like those are your real simple things that everyone can start with, you know, um, beyond that, um, I like, if I'm traveling to ride bike or run, I go to the local running store or bike shop. Um, if that doesn't work, um, find trail condition pages. So like in the twin cities, there's the trail bot app and it's an app on your phone that tells you that's populated with trail conditions for all the mountain bike trails in the Metro. Um, there's trail forks, which I believe they're outside just outside just bought that so i think they're going to start adding running into that as well that has um a trail conditions portion to it um i'm trying to think of what other apps i know um i honestly don't think all trails is that good of a it, there's no like social component to that um searching facebook almost every trail organization has some kind of facebook group um and it's just that that's the tough thing is it's a big component of this is seeking out the information, you know? So I think it's part of this is letting people know that like, Hey, if you're leaving tracks and stuff like that, you're really damaging the trail. And that applies to anywhere. That's not, if you're on a trail and the, and you, you get into a zone where if you're leaving tracks and it doesn't seem like it's going to be a short little segment, you should turn around, you know? And it's more along the lines of, Hey, find a different place if you're leaving tracks in that place, you know, or go run gravel or go run pavement or, you know, um, and it's, you're right. It is tough because it is open to interpretation, you know? Well, it sounds like, like what I mean, it, when you say open to interpretation, I feel like it is, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you show up to the trailhead to go and there's no even close signs, let's say, and you, and you look yeah. at it or you know a rain's coming, it's on you to make like the responsible decision, which I see yeah. is how this becomes a worthwhile conversation because most people out yeah. of convenience and selfishness, which rightfully I understand, like I came mm -hmm. to get a trail run and I'm going to go do it anyways yeah, and not think about maybe the long-term consequences. And you're right. Like if you've ever looked in Bracken, you know, you can speak to this. Like sometimes they put a Spartan race or an OCR course on some beautiful terrain and you go through it on day one and then you go through it on day two. And then you, if you just went through and looked at the aftermath, it's like that will never be the same again. No. Without question. And and so if everybody just says the fuck it attitude and shows up and uses it anyway, would it end mm -hmm. up looking like a Spartan race course, the aftermath, pretty pretty dangerous so i get why like it doesn't seem like well, you can just make a difference well it's just me going out and running the trail like it'll be fine i'm just one person i'm not going to cause that much damage but that mentality is what does cause the damage what i'm understanding and, yes and i think the struggle the struggle as i've run more with ocr like mud run people that do those events it embraces the idea of going out and doing something you're not supposed to go do you know but an event setting is a different situation than a public setting, right? And the, the struggle is like, how do you cross that boundary? You're like, all right, I know you want to go practice running in mud, but going out to your local state park and doing that is probably not a good idea. And then and and then posting on Strava and Instagram, oh, look how muddy my shoes are. And it's kind of like, oh, cool, man. You just wrecked five miles a single track. That's some volunteer is going to have to go spend a week raking out, you know? And so I think it's, it's like that it's, it's un it's an unfortunate thing, right? Because mud runs are super fun. I've had a blast in every mud run I've ever done. 
but those are private paid for, you know, they go back and do rehab on a lot of those, those places they run and everything that doesn't happen. There is no money to fix it in a public trail network, you know? And I think that's the, that's like the weird part of it is I don't think people recognize that we have all these parks. Most of that stuff is maintained by volunteers, you know? And so it's just a different, you got to have a different mentality about it. Kind of. You guys familiar with that concept of the tragedy of the commons? No. It's the, the idea that when there are shared, generally natural resources that are commonly held and the responsibility for maintaining it is a common one, people inherently act in a selfish way with that so that they get theirs, but then they mm-hmm. inherently deplete it for everyone. Yeah. So like, I mean, think of the idea of a stocked fish pond. Yeah. If, if there are no rules and you know I probably shouldn't take more than five out of these at a time, but I'm going to go take 20. Well, the guy next to you is probably going to take 20 and then they're not going to replenish in time and there's going to be no fish left. The tragedy of the common speaks to our inherent selfishness as humans mm-hmm. with the inability to see long-term. And it's funny that I taught that curriculum for years and we always used fishy crackers as our example. Yeah, grab as many as you want. Yeah. And so someone takes a handful and the person next to them like, well, I'm going to take two handfuls because I don't think it's going to get back around to me again. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. the fishy crackers aren't going to get dumped back into the bowl for another five minutes. So if you don't ration it, it's gone. And yet here I am kind of treating my trails with that same tragedy of the commons without realizing yeah. it. That's frustrating. Yeah. And when we sit in meetings, what I always bring up is like, look, we're loving our trails to death. I mean, like there's so many people using them now and people are finding their love for the outdoors. But there's a point when it's, it's enough that we're like, we're wrecking our own thing, you know? I want it now guarantees that I won't have it later. Yeah, right. Sometimes. Yeah, totally. I, I think part of it too is as far as like actionable things can do is get involved. I mean, like if you, if you have a trail that you go run a lot and you see those volunteers out there, it can be everything from, Hey, once a month, I'm going to. I'm going to step in and grab a rake and all those groups will show you what to do. You don't have to have any trail knowledge at all. Like period, none. You can show up in your running kit and be like, Hey, I'm here to help, you know, like, and they'll hand you a tool and they'll give you some basic instructions and you can help. Um, You can donate money to those clubs because those tools aren't free. You know, like those trails aren't free. Um, You can even do something simple. Like we've been places and, and for me, it's kind of like, Oh shit, there's 50 volunteers out there. I'll go to Pizza Hut and buy 20 pizzas and come back and be like, yo, thanks you guys. And here's some beer and pizza on us, you know, like simple, simple things. Um, if you're way into racing, pick some races where the entry fee goes to the trail organization, you know, and, and, and these are simple things that don't seem to you like they would do a lot, but to those organizations, simple stuff like that goes a really long way. So it's, it's like this or that, right? I can't give time, but maybe I can give money or I can't give money, but maybe I can give time. Either one for the club is very important. It's usually like Lebanon Hills, the main trail maintenance group for those trails, mountain bike trails. It's only like 10 guys. They're maintaining like 10 or 15 miles of bike trails. And that's once a week over a summer, you know? And so it's, something to remember that when you go run a trail, you're not getting face slappers because some guy spent an entire night walking the trail, cutting all those, or mm-hmm. that mud puddle you dealt with is all of a sudden gone one, one week because the trail organization went out and fixed all the drainage in that section. So, I mean, so it's, 
stuff to remember that as those trails improve, someone gave time probably to do that, you know. Is that something you can, is it taboo if I see something to come back that afternoon and just do it? Or do you, do you have to do it <sighs> under their umbrella? You probably want to do it under their umbrella. I'm just going to put that out there. You probably don't want to go out, yeah. on, especially with mountain bike trails. You don't want to go out and dig on them on your own without letting the group that maintains them know. What about just like bushwhacking, taking back face slappers? Is that something you yeah, can do alone? Absolutely. I mean, if okay. you come out on a, if you're, if you're running on a trail and there's a down tree and you can pull it out of the way, well, by all means, pull it out of the way, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, that's all, that's all easy stuff. But if you're like, oh, there's this puddle. And if I, you know, I'm bringing a shovel back to fix this. It's kind of like, well, maybe you should just reach out to the group before you do something like that. You know? Yeah. Um, what, um, amongst all users, I don't know what would all fall in this realm. Let's call, um, uh, let's say bikers, runners, horseback, snowmobiles, all of that. Who is the worst and why? Like who causes the most damage on trails? Oh man. Say on wet trails? Get I don't um, know, give it to me straight. Who's the worst? Who needs to be the most conscious? Um the people I I personally think what does the most damage to trails is horses. Okay. Um just because of how horses move through terrain and how they like dig the trail up. Um now when you talk about responsible users, <laughs> I think I think hikers and trail runners are probably um not as good as the other ones, but I also think part of that is because they've had trails given to them longer, you know, like mountain bikers, especially in the upper Midwest are super vested. They've had to earn their facilities. They weren't, they just haven't been here as long, you know, mountain biking is a new sport really in the grand scheme of things. So like if you go ride like Elm Creek that got built like what, 15 years ago, that's a new, that's an entirely new trail network, you know, and so that user group earned, they did all the work to get it. And I feel like a lot of, you know, you don't hear a lot about a, a lot of, about new trails for hikers and trail runners. And so I think a lot of people take for granted that those trails are there. Um, and so yeah. that, and I do feel like to add into that, and I know we got to wrap up Brack and you have a car to return, I believe a rental car here and shortly. <laughs> I have to leave in three minutes to get this car back. It's the first time you've ever given me a timestamp versus me giving you a timestamp. I like it. No, I, I feel powerful. But I feel like with the with the mountain bikers, like uh, those facilities, if they're well maintained and well volunteered, the minute the rain comes, the sign goes up about no use, and then people stay off, and it's like a very cut and dry thing. And trail running on an open user trail is where it happens for open interpretation. So. I can see how that would end up being the case. Like no sign because nobody's going to put one up no matter what, because this is a multi-use yeah. trail, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just being smart. Yeah. We like to think as runners because we don't have gear and we're lightweight that we don't impact the ecosystem. Like we're not leaving, you know, we're not skidding out around turns and locking up brakes and taking yeah. fat tires through there. Like we just have our shoes and our watch and that's it. Like we are leaving no trace, but that's not true. Yeah, no, I mean, everyone that travels through nature is you're impacting it somehow. And I think the other thing to remember is there's ultimately more hikers and runners than probably any user group. So you may go through there once, but if it gets 10,000 other feet that day, everyone's doing the same impact you're doing, you know. Um, and it's just being aware of that and uh, having your head on your shoulders. 
Okay, we got about 45 seconds left. Make it to an abrupt one. Um, just tell people where they can find you real quick, Adam. Thanks for your time, by the way. Um, uh, where they can find you, because you kind of post some cool stuff on your on your Instagram for at least uh, Pathfinder. So just tell tell the good people. Yeah, yeah. look us up, uh, Pathfinder Trails on Instagram, and uh, do some research. Find, find your local nonprofit that's digging on your trails and um, pitch in and help contribute at your favorite piece of single track. Send us away, Bracken. Mr. Timestamp. <laughs> well, Adam, <laughs> you did a lot for me today. Not only did you educate me, but you got me rightfully scared about tomorrow's Grand Canyon expedition. <laughs> so you're going to be on my mind a lot in the future, starting tomorrow and then probably every time I approach a wet trail from here on out. Yeah, be smart in the Grand Canyon and on your trails. <laughs> no promises for the first one. Yeah, have fun down there. <laughs> Thanks, man. Good chatting again. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, yeah, see you guys. Thank you.